0: Welcome, one and all, to a special edition of the Partial Historians. I am your host, Dr. Radness.
1: And I'm Dr. Greenfield. Equally
0: my host. No, wait. Well, no, no, equally your host, but uh, possibly equally rad, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) I think I can give you that title. (laughs) Yes. Ah, well, what a beginning. Okay, before we get into too much today, this episode is special for two reasons, Dr. G. Should I ask why? Yes, I think you should, because I want to (laughs) tell you. (laughs) Number one, we are taking a bit of a break from our narrative where we would normally be tracing the history of Rome from the founding of the city. Today, we're going to be looking at receptions of a character who has occupied some of our attention over the past months, Coriolanus. Yes, yeah, so if you're keeping close tabs, you'll realise that Coriolanus
1: has finally died. That's right, finally. It has taken many episodes. And it's we're not really sure time. how,
0: but uh, there are multiple theories, so we're pretty sure he's dead. I think there
1: were rocks involved. Yeah,
0: yeah. But it is also special to me um, for a second reason, and that is that I would like to dedicate this special edition, Partial Historians. To a couple of year 12 classes that I was lucky enough to teach in 2016. And sadly, I've not been able to take through to their HSE, but they were two of my most favourite classes ever. Lovely, lovely students. And so consider this uh, my parting gift to you. So special. (laughs) You could even call it a partial gift. Oh, I like like. it. I like it. Okay. All right. So, with dedications out of the way, we hope you all enjoy this special edition on Coriolanus. Now, Coriolanus and the reception yes, of Coriolanus. Indeed. Now, as I imagine most people have in the back of their minds, Coriolanus is a name that might sound vaguely familiar before we start doing podcasts on him.
1: Look, I mean, it should. Yeah. I mean, if, you, if you'd if like Shakespeare... Exactly. And
0: maybe you don't. Ah, the bard. <laughs> uh,
1: but even if you do...
0: Yeah. I, I must admit, I'm not the hugest Shakespeare fan. Um, but we can't really talk about Receptions of Coriolanus without talking about the Shakespearean play, because it kind of shapes... A lot of the subsequent stuff.
1: We have, yeah. yeah, it's a really important moment in literature and history. Yes. In terms of Shakespeare,
0: if yes. I may discourse.
1: Why, for please a do. Why, please do. <laughs> uh, because Shakespeare is in this period of time mm. of this flourishing Renaissance mm. epoch where the classics are reemerging. Yes. And Shakespeare himself has hold of a whole bunch of uh, Plutarch. Yes. In translation. It's been translated into English. Yes.
0: And Coriolanus, who'd have thought? Uh-huh. Well, to give us a bit of background about Shakespeare himself, I'm going to give the listeners a few deets, if I may. Oh, do. Yeah. So, just to give you a very specific time period, he was born in 1564 and died in 1616. And he How seems- dare he? I know. He seems to have stopped writing um, in 1613. He was born to a Local man called John Shakespeare, who seems to have been a glover slash businessman. (laughs) And Mary Arden, who was the daughter of a wealthy farmer. So she was actually in status above his father. A wealthy farmer. Mm -hmm. I feel like almost in this period, that's a contradiction in terms. (laughs) Well, see, the thing is, that is actually going to have, I mean, not that particularly about his mother, but the whole farming situation, that's going to come back into things later on. Anywho, um, we know that he wrote around 37 plays, and of those 37 plays... Ten were history plays. Yes,
1: yeah. and as it turns out, Coriolanus is the last.
0: It is of the Roman. Yeah, he, history Shakespeare plays. seems to have had a particular attraction to Roman history. So the most <laughs> famous ones, I think, would probably be Julius Caesar, Antony and Cleopatra. Coriolanus is not the best. Titus known. Andronicus. Oh. <laughs> How could you forget Titus Andronicus? <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> <Anyway>. <laughs> But yeah, he did, he did write quite a few Roman history plays. As he well as, did. Yeah, exactly. So Rome seems to have been something that appealed to him more than, like, say, Greece or something like that. And Coriolanus, the last in those Roman plays, was the most that was occupied about politics. Mm. Antony and Cleopatra, obviously, there are some politics, but it's also very much a romance. Mm. Okay, I'm not gonna,
1: I'm not gonna yeah. dissuade people from the idea that perhaps Julius Caesar is about politics as well.
0: It is, it is, but Coriolanus is pretty goddamn political <laughs> as well. <laughs> They're kind of similar in a sense, I suppose. Mm. But anyway, um, Coriolanus is a Shakespearean tragedy. For those of you who listen to our episodes on Coriolanus, this will not come as a shock. You have no way of turning Surprise! Coriolanus into a musical. I don't think. <laughs> Nobody's having a good
1: time, including Coriolanus. Yeah. Now,
0: and this all kind of makes sense because the Renaissance, of course, is a time of you know the rebirth of the classics. So the the idea of someone turning to Rome and Greece to write about stories of times gone by from the classical period, it kind of makes sense.
1: Yeah, yep. and if you're borrowing from Plutarch as Shakespeare is, then you're yes. also borrowing
0: the classical philosophy yes. as well. Yes, exactly. Actually, he's kind of borrowing from the Greeks if he's borrowing from mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, We don't really actually know a hell of a lot about Shakespeare's education specifically.
1: We think he learnt Latin.
0: Yeah, exactly, and probably Greek too. I mean, he. The thing is, we don't really have any specific records of his education. Um, they've all disappeared. Um, but he probably would have gone to a grammar school, which means he would have been educated in Latin, Greek, rhetoric, theology, blah, blah, blah. You know. All those things that are good for words and plays and yeah, stuff. Yes, exactly, yes. Yeah. So he would have received fairly impressive training in terms of the classics, especially in comparison yeah. to yeah. today. Not like school kids today running around learning that sort of stuff. So, yeah, pretty good. Now, obviously, the thing we need to remember when we think about Shakespeare and Coriolanus is that it's essentially a form of popular history we're dealing with here. Yes. Yeah. Uh, He's writing plays. So he is primarily writing to entertain, not to write a history.
1: Yes, this is true. So there's that. And he's also keeping in mind his audience. Mm. And so whatever history play he picks, he's also attempting to make some sort of comment on current situations
0: yes definitely um so what is essentially the plot of Shakespeare's Coriolanus okay so let me set the scene <laughs> <laughs> and I was going to say astute listeners be on the lookout for flaws <laughs> in this narrative <laughs> yeah so to give you a very brief overview so in Shakespeare's Coriolanus the citizens of Rome are starving through famine surprise yeah I know who saw that coming coming <laughs> Okay, there is a ruling class who don't really care about the sufferings of the people. Again, shock horror. (laughs) Um, And they are accused by the people of, you know, hiding food and, you know, stocking it for themselves, basically. Okay? Um, Outside the Roman territory, there has been a conflict with the Volskians. Ah, yes, he's got that part right. He's got the details right there. Yeah, Mm. so you've got outward tensions and then you've got inside a city that's just about to implode upon itself because of the political system. Okay. And the
1: secret hordes of grain. Yeah,
0: exactly, yes. Um, you've got tribunes known as Brutus and Sicinius, who are supposedly representing the interests of the people against this lordly ruling class. But oh my God, because they're politicians they're actually corrupt and just out for themselves. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> so Shakespeare. Exactly, yes. Yeah. So this is kind of the the scene of Shakespeare's mm-hmm. *Coriolanus*, which does ring some bells from what we've been talking about for the last what six, seven, yes, eight, nine. <laughs> Is there any other history besides Coriolanus yes. at this point? And Coriolanus is, of course, much like we've been talking about, he is an anti-hero. He's not going to be saving the day, that's for sure. Um, yes, if you're looking for somebody with a ready-made fatal flaw. Yes, yes, exactly. Yes. Um, essentially, he is a military man who cannot deal with the political system, really. He's not a politician, and he doesn't know how to ne- negotiate and work people and he just ends up making things a whole lot worse for himself and everyone else. <laughs> just says things and hopes things will change Too and much. stuff
1: doesn't. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. Um, so there seems to be this message coming through the play, at least this is how some people have interpreted it, that there would be sympathy for this one person against the needs of the many. Potentially, because obviously the plebeians are suffering a lot, as we know. They mm-hmm. suffer a lot. Um, however, it could be that there's a little bit more going on here in terms of what Shakespeare, like, why did Shakespeare choose to write about this particular episode of Roman history? Because it is kind of obscure, as we've, as we've talked about. It is kind of semi mythological and all that kind of stuff. So basically, some people pointed out that Shakespeare himself um, is a property holder in the area of Warwickshire. Oh yes, La Dee Da. Oh, I know, because um, he would have been quite established by this point in time. He's a successful playwright. You know. I was going to say yeah. this is yes, it's quite late in his. This career, is late in his it? career. Like, what, fifteen ninety eight? That he starts writing it. Or, yeah. Hmm. You know, I don't know when he started writing. It. I feel like it might have been even later. Hmm. Yeah, because it's public. It comes out in sixteen oh eight, so it might have oh, been a bit later. Maybe even later. Yeah. Yes. So Shakespeare himself is a property holder. Okay. Um and. There were riots in Shakespeare's own county against privatization of public land. Mm. So there are agricultural issues going on. Basically, the agricultural workers who are... I mean, with, we are in this period of the Renaissance where things are becoming more modern, but there's still slightly a bit of a you know medieval overhang in terms of the regulations about how, you know, when people can grow food, where people can grow food, and that sort of thing. And so people are basically trying to... Um, regain their rights um, because the landowners are enclosing what used to be common land. Okay, and this is this has been an issue I think in England for a long time before Shakespeare's time. But the fact that it's in Shakespeare's home county and the fact that there's a lot of hardship going on, workers are very hungry, not being paid a lot there's a lot of tension going on here and a lot of disturbances yes. in the local area. So, so when you raise a question like, who's holding the grain?
1: Exactly,
0: <laughs> yeah. So it's possible that Shakespeare saw something in what was going on in his own home county that made him turn to the story of Coriolanus and that you know, that sort of made it appeal to him. I don't know. Are we reading too much into it? I we'll never know. Sadly, <laughs> Shakespeare did not leave anything behind to <laughs> to tell us, Why? Shakespeare's Secret Diary. That's right, exactly, yeah. Again, Um, I feel like I'm Coriolanus against the masses. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, Now, not surprisingly over time, Shakespeare, I mean, everybody loves Shakespeare, and his play has been picked up and used over time for different reasons. So other people have read into into Shakespeare. I mean, kind of weird reception, I think, whenever Shakespeare's involved, because it's kind of like a reception upon a reception.
1: (laughs) Yes. Because it's
0: not that Shakespeare's version is perfect or... No, and his his source material is pretty limited. Yeah, yeah. Um, Oh, if you're just using Plutarch. I mean, we've already seen how much difference there is between Dionysius, Livy, and Plutarch. Yeah, and he's
1: adapting it into a completely different form, the play, and then that form is then what somehow reconstructed into the first folio, and then in other versions, and there's inconsistencies within the text itself. Absolutely. And then you have the reception of Shakespeare, and some people just go to Shakespeare yeah. as their launching point for their own adaptation and don't go back to the ancient source material at
0: all, which, frankly, as an ancient historian, I find a little bit offensive. <laughs> nice. Put them in their place. <laughs> so there has been other adaptations, just to give you uh, a sort of example. Um, there has been theatrical propaganda uh, for the Stuart monarchy against Whig politicians in England who were trying to limit the power of the monarchy. So there was a staging of Coriolanus at around this time. So this guy called No, I think it's Nahum Tate. I've never seen that name before. Um, He basically reworked the play in 1681 and called it The Ingratitude of a Commonwealth. (laughs) (laughs) Which made Coriolanus completely sympathetic and everyone else very... And that's...
1: (laughs) Less than a century after it was written as exactly, well. Exactly, yeah,
0: exactly. So people are already, you know, sort of... People are finding it, it yeah, and they're like, ooh, I can use this to suit my own purposes. Yeah, and then to sort of do a complete flip around just to show you how these things can be reworked to suit purposes. Um, when we come to the 20th century and looking at, say, the regime of Stalin, um, Stalin's Ministry of Information reworked it so that Coriolanus is wholly evil and an enemy of the people. Of course. Yeah. Which he could, is. Say, yeah, because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> that fits their their aims about you know the proletariat, the workers, you know, yeah, yeah, communism and, and all, you know. <laughs> and, well, and and Russia
1: has this massive peasant base which it's operating from. So yeah, if. It's gonna, if you're going to put a, together a play yeah. about Coriolanus in Stalinist <laughs> yeah. Russia, it has, be to, a it has
0: to be about the green and the people, yeah. not about the guy. Yeah, exactly. Um, now, interestingly, because I had never heard this before, but I, I did find this particularly fascinating. As <laughs> Somehow, when you throw in Nazis, everything becomes more interesting. I don't know how. Um, but basically, there was actually a particular edition of Coriolanus that was issued to German schools in 1934, which actually seemed to be drawing comparisons between Coriolanus and Hitler. That's
1: very early
0: on. I know, I know. And so Coriolanus is basically trying, he's seen as this guy who's trying to, you know, lead the people back to a healthy place. And, you know, just like Adolf Hitler wanted to, you know, restore the, you know... purity and yeah, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Coriolanus
1: um, as as best and traditional. Yes, yeah. exactly, yeah, and as the
0: wise leader against yes. the people who might be a little confused and lost, I suppose. Yeah, very interesting. Which is really interesting. And it was it was obviously so significant in Germany during this period that it's, it was, performances were actually banned <laughs> until the 1950s in Germany. It was put on a blacklist yeah, by the enough. Americans. Um, so, yeah, it's obviously been interpreted in many different ways <laughs> for many different purposes. And as I say, it, it starts to get a little bit confusing because you are looking at an interpretation by Shakespeare, which we can't really know for certain what he was talking about, who was using Plutarch, and a probably a translation of Plutarch at that. Yes, he was, yeah. Yeah, it and as, as you guys know, Plutarch is the later source that we were <laughs> using. I mean Livy and Dionysius are yeah. much closer in time, and even they are far away from the event. So it's a really long road to travel. Well, and, and not only that, but yeah. in contemporary
1: scholarship on Coriolanus, yeah. people debate whether he's even a historical figure. Well, exactly. Anyway. Yeah. I mean, well, this is always our problem. But yes. uh, particularly so Coriolanus, <laughs> <laughs> because the narrative has such a really particular uh, moralistic arc, Definitely. which seems to feed into some particular lessons that the Romans need to understand Completely. in order to be a people, yes, uh, that that with the mishmash of the different sorts of accounts, you're like, none of this is very plausible, is it? No. And maybe it is plausible and maybe it's not plausible. Mm. But once you get out of that historical epoch and you get into Shakespeare and beyond, you're really just dealing with
0: fictionalisations of Coriolanus. But this is the thing. I mean, if we are looking, I mean, and this is where I, because, you know, (laughs) I like reception stuff. When you are looking at something that's potentially... Uh, A semi-mythologized, maybe entirely fictional account to begin with. What is the harm then in changing it for your own purposes? This is the thing. Not at all. Exactly. (laughs) If the Romans and the Greeks are writing about, you know, this particular event to try and draw lessons and exemplars for the people who are their audience in their own day, then it's really about morality. Hmm. you know um and it's a different kind of history we're dealing with here it's like history of like attitudes and you know yes. how the history, history is...
1: yeah the history of ideas and the way that history is leveraged
0: yes. to serve different purposes exactly and so essentially although we might say well this isn't a very plausible interpretation this is highly anachronistic at the same time essentially that's probably what the romans and the greeks were were doing themselves with livy Dionysius, and plutarch so it's kind of a bit of a I feel very circular right now.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. yeah, I'm not like for, for me reading Dionysius of Halicarnassus, it's really clear to me that there's a huge Greek edge to all of this in terms of like the philosophical background coming into it, the moralizing coming into it. And then the kind of, uh, tourism aspect where Dionysius is acting as interpreter. Yes. Here are the Roman people, and this is how you must understand <laughs> Look them. Look at them and gasp. Yeah. <laughs> let, let me give you a Greek analogy to help you
0: out here. Well, and that's just it. I mean, I must admit, one of uh, one of the people who I most respect in reception studies, Alistair Blanchard, he sort of always talked about how there are particular ancient writers that just speak more to 20th and 21st century TV and film producers because they just read in that sort of a way, and when I was reading Plutarch's account, because we haven't had many chances to read Plutarch up till now, you can so see it. It's such a soap opera, you know, <laughs> like you know the women turning up, the lamentations, the speeches, the drama. Yeah, the way it's, the way it's all framed, the way the story is told, it's a beautiful narrative, and it it works so well for a tragedy. I mean, you know, it's crying to be turned into entertainment. <laughs>
1: Somebody give that man a scream! Yeah,
0: right. yeah. So, surprise, you know, not surprisingly, it has been used. Um, however, perhaps because of these sort of, I, I don't know, Nazi connotations, it's not been used a lot in the 20th century, not, not anywhere near as much as other Shakespearean works in terms of turning it into films and that sort of thing. There's been a few, um, but nothing hugely prominent until, dun, 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 until. 2012. We're, yeah now I'm
1: going to posit and maybe this is uh, I, this is idle speculation but speculation nonetheless that might be interesting sure, sure is that one of the reasons perhaps that Coriolanus hasn't been picked up and mm. run with in really particular ways throughout yes. large swaths of the 20th century yes um, aside from the Nazi thing yeah um, <laughs> well that's, that's, a, guess, that's yeah. a bit unfortunate yeah <laughs> um, is also the fact that the relationship between uh, food source, and person Mm, has altered radically that's true particularly in the latter half of the 20th century Yeah, and particularly in like you know countries like America yeah and and particularly within the western tradition which is where Coriolanus is coming through sure and if you don't have that physical connection to the land and you don't have that physical connection to the food and Mm. the labor involved in processing it, then your anger over grain supply
0: It's it's gonna be limited. It's gonna be
1: somewhat limited. You're gonna be like, yeah, but just go to another supermarket.
0: That's Um, true. People are much more divorced now, and also I think I think also class structure has altered so much from the early 20th century. Yeah, I mean, definitely, obviously, no denying, there's still very rich and very poor people in the world, but you know, it's not quite. I don't know, it's in your face, I suppose. Perhaps the polarisation
1: is slightly different. Yeah. And also the moral absolutism which Coriolanus represents Mm. is it doesn't lend itself necessarily well to a audience push on at the moment for moral relativism or moral Mm. complexity of character. This is true. Coriolanus represents somebody who believes strongly that something is right. And then just holds his ground like a stone against the ocean as it comes at him saying, you must change. And he's just like, no, not
0: happening. (laughs) Uh, Which doesn't
1: make him particularly sympathetic. No. um, But maybe admirable in a small way.
0: Yeah, well, as I say, the the film in 2012, I find quite interesting because it is quite obviously in line with some of the things we've been talking about in terms of a modern, not a modern version, well, yeah, a modern version, I suppose. As in, it's someone who's seen the story and said, "Yes, I want to make this story something that speaks to a new generation," um, because Ralph, um, sorry, Rafe Fiennes. I'm just gonna call him Rafe. Um, his this is his directorial debut. This film. Oh so, really? Yes. So this was obviously what a something, choice. Yeah, and he's obviously you know he's. Plays a whole range of characters, but he's obviously a fairly illustrious actor. Shakespeare wouldn't be something new to him, yada yada, you know. But I find it interesting that he chose that particular play. And he's definitely taken it into the twentieth century by setting it in modern times. You know, it's no longer, you know, swords and or javelins or whatever you else you want to use. It's tanks and aircraft and machine guns. You know, it's <gasps> it's uh, a it's modern warfare. It's modern warfare, yeah. So it's a thoroughly modernised version of the events i mean there's the storyline the plot line remains much the same as in you've got an angry populace who are running riot because they're starving the ruling class are hoarding the grain um coriolanus does have a friend called menenius um who you know it's like the moderate sort of character tries to help him i don't know <laughs> tries to help moderate him fails yeah, tries him to, you know tries to help him <laughs> be a bit more flexible which he's not very good at as we know um you know, coriolanus, marches off in the middle of all the people's unhappiness about the grain to deal with the enemy who are the Volskys you know. so it's still the same sort of storyline he's still dealing with these wily tribunes Sicinius and Brutus it's very much Shakespeare's play, it's still Shakespearean language but just the costumes are all modern mm. military dress and I have to admit I did find that quite a powerful thing to watch You know, I, I quite liked it um, but more than just um, rave Fiends, we probably have to consider a few other people who I think were quite instrumental in shaping this particular film. Um, the first is the screenwriter, who I think worked quite closely with um, Fiends on crafting this. John Logan, who was the writer for Gladiator, or one of the writers for Gladiator, um, and also was Oscar-nominated for The Aviator. And also Barry Ackroyd, who was the cinematographer on The Hurt Locker. Now, okay, going to give Fiends, it a nice realistic military exactly. feel. Ray Fiends, uh, he had a slight cam. he had a little cameo in The Hurt Locker. And I suspect he might have you know, obviously sort of witness what um, Ackroyd was up to in terms of the handheld realism, you know, the warfare mm. angle that gave that the Hurt Locker, which was obviously a very popular movie, particularly with critics, such a gritty, yes. you know, in-your-face kind of feel. And that's definitely taken through this movie. I mean, Coriolanus, a lot of the violence takes place, you know, off stage, presumably because it would have been a bit difficult to, you know, stage in Shakespeare's own time, all that kind of stuff. But... This isn't the case in this one. It's very gritty, quite gory, really in your face. So I think that those three people probably yeah. had a, a so lot consequences of, matter. Yeah, and I think um, I think the the direction they chose to take it. You know, you can sort of see from those three guys that that's the kind of direction that they wanted to take this. Make it very maybe try and make it speak. I suppose more to a modern audience. I, I don't know, but yeah, it's um, it's an interesting way to interpret it, and um, and I
1: definitely liked it. Do you think it makes Coriolanus a more sympathetic
0: character? Well, this is the thing. It's got a lot of interesting. There's a lot of interesting aspects to it. Um, Costuming-wise, Fiennes has gone for Bullhead. head, um, and some reviewers sort of commented that it almost invoked his very famous role as Voldemort. <laughs> <laughs> ah well you know the there's, bad <laughs>
1: there's anybody to drag you into a film and think Coriolanus might be a bad guy it's thinking you might be also Voldemort yeah
0: yeah and um, it, whilst the Rome of this movie is not anywhere you know terribly specific it's obviously just like a war-torn place a lot of people have commented about how they're obviously trying to draw comparisons to war-torn Serbia in the 1990s like Balkan style, okay, yeah, um, conflict in the way that things look and appear, and some have also commented that they feel like the themes of the film are also maybe trying to, because um, this is obviously made in twenty twelve, so potentially it was influenced by the events during the Arab Spring, mm. which would have been relatively well, very yes, recent, very recent, very yes. recent, um, in terms of um, the how you know the democratic gains can be sort of washed out by military power um which is obviously very much a a theme of coriolanus's you know yes, story in shakespeare yes. um because that's essentially what he is he's just like a military machine <laughs> um and they've definitely gone for the i mean shakespeare's um version of things had a very powerful mother figure i think very much like Dionysius's yes <laughs> yeah um, and she and, and you really see how much in this film I think you know she has crafted him and eggs him on to be you know be the best you know be the greatest be this war hero machine type thing oh wow yeah and you and you can definitely see you know some of those a lot of the things we've been talking about like the idea that Coriolanus would bear his scars to show the Romans you know like what he's done to them and and, and that sort of thing um, the other interesting thing that comes across in this particular film which might, I don't think probably was in a lot of other interpretations is, of course, once Coriolanus cracks the shits and takes off um, um, in his exile and he meets up with his, his, you know, once enemy, now friend, you know, the tool character, uh, who is played by Gerard Butler in this particular movie. Um, a lot of people have commented on the sort of almost homoerotic element to the way...
1: Ah, interesting. Yeah, which, I
0: mean, is funny because, I mean, I suppose I can't say that's entirely this film because we did joke about how they had a bit of a bromance... Certainly, they appear to get very close very quickly. Yeah, exactly. So that's perhaps not something new, but it's definitely something that's been picked up on and commented. Mm. Um, commented it's been on. noticed. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and it's. I think it is. It is obviously like it's meant to be a sort of interesting discussion about political figures, because although Coriolanus can't adapt to, you know. You know, lowering himself to <laughs> the, the role of you know popular demagogue type <laughs> figure. <laughs> He's definitely still old school Coriolanus on that. The people who are meant to be representing the interests of the people, the tribunes, they are totally self-serving, cynical politicians as well. So nobody really comes across as a good character. I was going to say, and there yeah. is
1: no real champion of the people at this point either. No.
0: So it's, it's quite like a, it's quite a cynical um, take on things, I suppose. Um... Which is quite, yeah, which is quite interesting, I suppose. And I think it probably speaks a little bit to the, I mean, obviously in the position that we're in now in 2017, I think a lot of people have been talking about how people are getting very sick of politicians, the promises they make. Is a film that might stand the test of time in that respect. Yes,
1: yes. The criticism of the populist. Yeah. uh, There is something to be said for that. Yeah. And if Coriolanus stands for anything, it is against populism. And yes. and part of the the takeaway from the narratives, um, particularly from the ancient world, even though Coriolanus is distinctly positioned as being against the plebeians, yes, he's not so much. On some level, you can see that as not so much arguing against those those people directly as a class, no. though is yeah. what he's really arguing against is the type of politics which has been permitted yes. in this new atmosphere. Absolutely, yeah. Um, he may actually have a personal problem with the tribunes being around, Yeah. but what he really despises about the tribunes is the way that they're doing politics. And, yeah, and exactly. It, yeah. And it's yeah. aiming for a lowest common denominator. It is engaging in demagoguery. And maybe he doesn't like it because he doesn't have the skill... Or maybe there is a legitimate criticism there about the dangers of just pandering to that populist And, and
0: I think, at the, and the funny thing is, it also points out the dangers of having military leaders, you know, ah, yes. in, in, in the political <laughs> sphere, you know. Well, but,
1: when it goes wrong, it goes really wrong. And yeah, they turn up in front of your city, and you're like, how did you get all those tanks? Never and you, you mind. Are you going to their mother still
0: alive <laughs>
1: No, unless there's no way out.
0: Yeah, I mean, a lot of people just have commented on just how visceral it is, you know, that I mean, the performances have been wildly you know, applauded. Jared Butler, Fiends, Vanessa Redgrave as his mother, and Jessica Chastain as his wife. They all give, you know, it's like standout performances. Um, the thing is, though, I suppose, about a movie like this, which obviously has quite an interesting message, especially for, as I say, people in our own time where we are debating a lot about our own political systems and how to truly achieve democracy and where loyalties really lie and all that kind of stuff. Um, the fact that they did obviously choose to, you know, they're still using Shakespearean language and that sort of thing. Who is this film? Who is it really for? Exactly. Who's going to really watch this? This is the thing. I mean, it was a really big hit with critics. (laughs) Um, and I think... (laughs) And Shakespeare lovers, maybe. Yeah, well, yeah, I I think it did do, like, quite well, you know, I mean, as far as... Shakespearean Roman tragedies go (laughs) it was pretty good and it's not that Shakespeare is necessarily like a death knell. I mean you look at Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet there's been many film versions of Julius Caesar then they've all been you know popular enough but I don't know that this film I think it was a little too dark and a little too obscure to really find a large popular audience but that could just be me (sighs) (laughs) and also Coriolanus is such a because of his identity as being someone who's so... I mean, his mother is just, you know, she is Dionysus' mother. She is just a powerhouse, you know, just... He is the product of her. He's obviously completely dominated by, dominated by her in some ways. But as we noted, he's also uber-masculine. And then he also has this weird sort of romance going on with his enemy slash friend slash enemy. You know, it's all very confusing. (laughs) Yeah, Coriolanus, a man who uh, has all of
1: the morality that the world could ask for, but perhaps lacks all of the social skills that would make life interesting.
0: Yeah, and essentially with the idea that you've got, you know, a Shakespeare with modern military around it, maybe it will appear to more people, and especially, as you said, in unstable political times you know, with people demanding more from their state than they have been currently getting people feeling ripped off, disenfranchised. Mm -hmm. Mm.
1: Mm. Oh, yes. Just wait. (laughs) Check out the recent, the screenings in your area. You know, you never know. Groups might get onto this. (laughs) Exactly, yeah.
0: But um, there has also been a 2014... Feel like TV movie with Tom Hiddleston as Coriolanus, which I have yet to Hello. see. Hello. Yeah, so maybe we should check that out and see how how mm. they've interpreted things. But I did appreciate the modern military overtones, especially, you know, obviously with understanding they were maybe trying to draw those parallels with the Arab Spring and the idea of democracy versus the military and where does it all fit together and that sort of thing. Yeah, how does it really work? Yeah, so Coriolanus, like many figures, can be a figure for all time, just like Shakespeare. Mm. Oh. <laughs> We hope you enjoyed that special edition of The Partial Historians on the reception of Coriolanus. Obviously, that you could do a lot more reading on this topic. We could only very briefly touch on the different interpretations.
1: You certainly could. Yeah. Maybe this is your invitation to go and watch uh, some various versions totally. of Coriolanus. There are, there are see definitely what you
0: think. Yeah, there are definitely some interesting-looking versions that came out in the 1960s. <laughs> <laughs> I can only imagine. <laughs> exactly. Until next time. Fare you well.